Hello and welcome back to Strange Library Podcast. I was away last month. I hope you all missed me. I missed me. How are you today, Aiden? I'm good. Yes, I missed you as well. But I had a lot of fun <laughs> while you were away, I must admit. <laughs> you guys did a great job last episode. I really loved hearing about werewolves. I really loved the tangents about nuns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, though, there were some good tangents. My name's Leroy. My name's Aiden. This week, we are doing a bit of a different story. Aiden, do you want to introduce this one? Yes, this is Do You Get That Feeling, which is a sci-fi horror sort of story, which I thought fit really nicely with our strange library because it's sort of psychological weird weirdness towards the end, which I really like with an undercurrent of psychology. But it's written by Simon Parker, who is my dad. So really strong bias on this one <laughs> because... I, uh, I know him rather well, and yes, so please don't expect this to be a completely unbiased, objective interpretation of this. It'll be very biased and very subjective, but hey, that's sort of why you're here, isn't it? Yeah, look, I think we're known for our bias. <laughs> I would listen to us for our bias. Yeah, look, I had a good time with this one too. It got, it got violent. <laughs> yeah, no, the ending is really brutal. So your, your father, he writes a lot of stories, does he? He writes some. This was written, oh, I want to say, 10 years ago now. In fact, the photo on the front is a photo that Dad and I took at ScienceWorks in front of the fog machine and light machine from when I was very young. Um, but yeah, no, that, that was a collection of short stories that he'd written sort of over a few years. In his spare time, he'll write some stuff. He's written a couple of stories, but hoping for another, another collection soon. <laughs> we will leave the link to the story in the show notes. I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the short stories out of this book. Yeah, they're cool. They're cool. They're all 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 a bit different, I think. And this one's this one's the most brutal, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Is this uh, a favorite? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one when we were thinking about stories to do, when I was thinking about what what should we do, this one came to mind because it's the most it's the weirdest. It's definitely the nastiest. And I, I thought that it was definitely something we could talk about. There was lots of bits that I, I felt we could really discuss and, and really dive, dive into. Yeah, uh, there's lots of stuff that I like about this. There is, It is kind of like playing in some, some sci-fi Brave New World kind of tropes as well. Some equilibrium in there as well. <laughs> like like <laughs> equilibrium is a, is a high literature. But yeah, it's, it's a little bit of that. We'll, we'll get to the synopsis. Jacob Rogers is an interesting character. It's difficult to separate him from the effects of the drug, but how did you feel about him reading reading this story? So the underlying theme is very anti-drug use, specifically medication. And so I found that Jacob Rogers really encapsulated the idea of a child who has been medicated their whole life. Cause I got the idea, got the impression of someone who was very successful but incredibly lost. Yeah, he didn't really know why he was successful. I mean, that's exemplified by the opening sort of few lines, really, which describes his his hollow card with him on it. Yeah, we will get to that. It it seems like this character never had a chance to even develop as a person before they were taken down this path of a mind altering drug. We'll we'll just get to the first part of the synopsis just so that people know what we're talking about. Jacob Rogers is a sales rep for a computer company and he is happy and successful and he knows this because his business card says so. Yes. <laughs> he starts off describing how successful he is and in such a confident way and I love the way yes it says I know this because of my card. Yep. Yeah and it's juxtaposed with pretty much the next sentence that says when I was young I was neither happy nor successful my parents decided this <laughs> yes yes the parents don't make much of an appearance but when they do it's always just a little bit insipid and a little bit nasty yeah they get a bit of a jab later on Jacob was a troubled child he found that he couldn't read particularly well he got frustrated with the books and he mm -hmm. broke a lot of book readers <laughs> yes sort of threw them across the room. I'm not sure if there's like, we feel he had something that could be diagnosable by a psychologist or he was just being a kid. So when I asked dad about this story, I said, is there anything that you sort of was really important? And he said that the, the main theme of the, the medication, the constant medication for a young age was really, really important. 
but I wonder if there's a sort of underlying point of he's medicated because he's not what the parents want him to be, not necessarily because there's anything actually wrong with him. Yeah, we've, I mean, this is something that I've experienced, something that I've seen. I call it the auto-tune effect, where once auto-tune becomes a thing, and not that it is anymore, that people are going to overuse it, people are going to overprescribe it, they're going to use it to the point where everyone hates it. And I feel like our modern world is a complex one, and sometimes medication is necessary, sometimes it isn't, and the zeitgeist is going to kind of get it wrong for a while before it gets it right. And that's a that's a real fear, real concern. I, I don't know how I would go about this if I was a parent. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess it's sort of like this of psychological equivalent of antibiotics, really. Because mm-hmm. they are notoriously good and were a remarkable invention. But because they get used so often, we now have diseases that are completely resistant to them. And I think it, it's sort of in a similar vein, as you say, that's sort of the auto-tune effect where you have people over-prescribing things for people who don't actually have a problem. They're just not the way that parents expect or things like that. Yeah, and and this will come into a very well-trodden sci-fi concept of like gene editing. Like, at what point do we remove humanity because it's easier? At what point do we just make everyone kind of a little bit flat and a little bit beautiful where nothing is beautiful like we, we can see this without crazy sci-fi concepts we can see this in standards of beauty we can see this with even things like behavior what is an acceptable level of difficult before we are intolerant of it and i don't have the answers so for those of you who don't know i sort of currently work with sort of children in a psychological sort of sense and yet that's exactly one of the questions is what at what points do you decide that a behavior that the child is is exhibiting is a problem because sometimes it might not be normal for a sort of neurotypical child but if they're neurodivergent then the behavior that's sort of not normal it's normal for them and it's not a problem it's not interfering in their everyday habits and it's not interfering in their learning it's not interfering in their development so is there any point in addressing it and that's that's the big question of course that comes up in my line of work personally but yeah i guess this sort of ties all back into this where yes he's given this drug when he's 10 to address the fact that he can't read very well and he gets a bit he gets his angry outbursts if we start solving every one of these problems by bypassing it maybe some of the underlying problems just do not get addressed underlying societal problems don't get addressed but not that I'm anti-medication, not that I'm anti-exploring, but yeah, this is this is a fear that people have, and I think there's something to it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The name of the drug, and maybe you can give some <laughs> insight. I was saying no, no. <laughs> it is it is non-oxyzytal with the Z capitalized. I was re- putting the emphasis in the wrong place, and I was calling it no, no, zy zytal. Did you pick up any kind of little jab in the name there? But or does it sound scientific enough? <sighs> So I think it just sounds scientific enough. If I were to read far too deeply into it, <laughs> which, um, which would be fun, <laughs> which yeah, I'd say that no nox, as in not noxious, yep, as in this isn't poison medication. Uh-huh. But yeah, as I, I think, I think in the end it's a scientific thing, scientific sounding, which it, I think it does. It's always written as well with a capitalized N and a capitalized Z. Yes, it feels I like it should have a TM amazing. at the end. Yes, yeah, very much so. Yeah, and he speaks about it as if it is the presence, you know, a, like a proper noun. Yes, yes, it is It, it, it is a thing. <laughs> so time goes on. He's doing better at school. He's performing the way that people want him to behave. One of the problems, however, is a bit of a memory loss hmm. that kind of comes and goes. It doesn't quite remember everything, but he remembers that he got good grades. Yes, yeah, he, he sort of seems to remember vague concepts. Like, he remembers the concept of school, he remembers the concept of his grades, but he can't actually remember anything that happened. Yeah, at some point he, he kind of has a crush on a popular girl called Sydney, Cindy, 
Yes, uh, when he's 15. So here's a one of the earliest insights into what sort of person Jacob Rogers is. Uh-huh. He walks home and follows her. He doesn't walk home with her and her friends. He stalks her home and he does that a lot. And he mentions like she doesn't even know he exists. But yeah, no, it's not it's not nice and sweet. He straight up stalks her to her house multiple times. Oh, that's right. He does. At some point, he <laughs> kind of just interjects and he becomes becomes part of the friend group. I think he starts talking with them. I see. I didn't interpret it that way at all. I, I interpreted it as it, like it went south quickly. Like they, they kind of distanced themselves. But at first they were kind of not with him. Yeah. Okay. I, I, as I said, I, I didn't interpret that at all. I interpreted it as... um. So he mentions how the first time he, he plucks up the courage to walk home with her. Actually walk home with her rather than <laughs> the other way he's doing it. And he mentions how things seem off. Now, I think there's a bit of the classic overthinking everything because once he's finished talking to her and he's walking home by himself, he starts to think about it. And by the time he reaches home, he's a complete wreck. And I think that's that's sort of talking about the way teenagers naturally overthink everything, overanalyze everything. And so he analyzes every question, every sort of statement. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, at some point he does say that the the drug knocks out the really bad even though he does say he's got a bit of nervousness and he, he was a bit of a wreck at the end but i'm imagining now that he approached them they were absolutely vile to him <laughs> and he just kind of like was oh that was a bit off because he just didn't he didn't register that it was absolutely negative if i remember correctly i'm pretty sure he actually only walks home with her to her knowledge twice twice yep and it's that once is with her and her friend and yeah there's this underlying current of was, did it actually go well or did it go really poorly? It, he kind of implies that the first time went well, but then the second time was not so great, but not negative. And then he just can't remember seeing her again. He never walked home with her again and he's not sure she was ever at his school again. Yeah, I mean, it looks like his entire school experience is a bit of a blur. He finished second school. He's making his parents happy. It probably made me happy too, but I can't remember. It would have made me happy, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I like that line. Yes, there's a lot of, yeah, questioning what actually happened. It's it's fascinating because he sort of basically has this personality that's made up of him reading through a book of himself. (laughs) The inability to have a personality because he was waylaid so early by this drug, but also, yeah, never really developing anything. If, If the only memory you have of primary and high school is i i think i did well Hmm. and there was a girl i had a crush on for a bit and then that's all he remembers yeah yeah it's this sort of yes he's seeing his personality through through frosted glass yeah well it's not rose tinted glass it's just frosted yeah it's just frosted it's definitely not rose (laughs) (laughs) he moves on from high school and gets himself a psych degree on and off with the medication at this point, he doesn't super love it. No, and he, he, it's in information technology, which I interpret it to mean it's basically like a a degree where you learn the psychological concepts of, like, marketing. Yeah. That's sort of what I interpret. I don't know if that's a real degree, I'll be honest, but it, it felt like that was what it was talking about, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, so you you think that he gravitated towards like learning masking, mm. Mm. and fun fun fact: this was written, oh, I want to say four years before I did any form of psychology in school, <laughs> and at least six years before I started my psych degree. So <laughs> I thought that was quite funny rereading it again. <laughs> He's, yeah, I think he was trying to trying to ward you off that one, but it didn't work. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> we get some some of the sci-fi concepts here that there are speed learning machines, and speed learning hurts? Question mark. Yeah, well, I I kind of understood what he was saying because he talks about how every time he basically they sit in a speed learning machine, and every time they came out, he felt like his head was three sizes too small. Mm-hmm. And I kind of understood that because it was like. You can imagine you learn in a specific way and you slowly feel your your brain beginning and beginning. But imagine if someone basically shoved a stupid amount of information into your head and you couldn't forget it. 
because mm-hmm. that's what they sort of it's implied happens here because you'd, you'd think at least the reason it's speed learning is because they are being forced to remember it yeah firing neurons for you yeah i w- as a person who is probably undiagnosed adhd <laughs> i would very much like that but yeah they do describe that his drug is actually making it a bit easier for him and everyone else is struggling with it quite a lot like it it hurts and things are difficult to adjust to afterwards. Yes, and he, um, he mentions as well that whenever he had a speed learning day, they were high high drug days. Yeah, high one of the things that I almost forgot is uh, he he was playing around with not taking it, but the speed learning and the school kind of like forced him back to taking it. Oh, he said one time I overdid it and ended up sitting in my room for a week smiling at the walls. <laughs> That's- that's some beautifully creepy imagery. I love that. He's not taking his meds consistently. He's taking them more when he feels he needs it and less when he feels he doesn't. Which, I once again, I thought was potentially a little sort of commentary on the way medication is prescribed. And I think this is more commentary on the way people take it. Because, like... If you're prescribing medication, you tend to make sure you prescribe it in a stable amount, shall we say. And you up it when you feel you need to, but it takes time and that medication is like over a long period. You don't you don't go up and down over the, like as erratically as he says, which I thought, so I thought it was interesting. It sort of delves into that slightly sort of self-medication aspect. It doesn't quite match up with, with how like the chemistry works that, that he is probably just self-medicating. This is... This is just a coping mechanism for a bad, bad living strategy. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And then he meets Donald Donald. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, before we go on, I just, I I wanted to note because something that hit me right away when I read this book, I feel like a bad sci-fi, maybe not bad sci-fi, but that 70s big idea sci-fi would have had the entire population on this drug and like... In, in the future, everyone takes this suppressant, but I, I really like that it's not everyone. It's just a select group of people. Yes. It's not this all or nothing kind of like really simplistic concept. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And speaking of, there's a couple of bits later on that I, I think really hint to it. But did you get the feeling his family were very wealthy? I think so. Yeah, I, I felt like, especially later on, there's a couple of things. It's like, I feel like that couldn't have sort of American Psycho vibes, just to spoil yep. towards the end. But <laughs> I, yeah, especially at the start, the fact that he was on this high class, should we say, medication, the fact that it was something that was just easily accessible when, as you point out, no one else is on it. I thought, yep. I, I wonder if his parents are actually really quite well off. It, it could be the case where they've sent him to a school that's more expensive than they can really afford and they need that performance. So they're not poor, but they're like upper middle class reaching mm. for ultra wealthy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. That that could be there as well. But it's he's still wealthier than most people, I'd say. I'd say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it felt like, yeah, he was wealthier than like a lot of his classmates and a lot of the people he sort of interacts with. Yeah, we'll put that on the wealth chart of all the characters we've <laughs> covered so far. Exactly. Uh, there's a tick box for space. There's a tick box for wealth. And I think he's on the upper upper curve of this. He is. Not he as is. poor or as rich as the, the protagonist from The Tiger's Bride. Yeah. She was both. He was both. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Donald Donald. The terrible name. Donald's. Donald. In fact, doesn't he say he's gonna he was gonna sue his parents when he was old enough? <laughs> yeah, he was gonna sue his parents for his <laughs> terrible name. And Donald Donald is always upset, probably because of his name. <laughs> Which rightfully so, honestly. I don't know, like Dee Dee. Dee Dee's kinda cool. Yeah, but then you have to explain why it's Dee Dee. No, I just my parents call me Demon Daggers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Daggers the Dagger's demon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Super cool. (laughs) Donald gets right up in his grill after a speed learning session where everyone's a little bit grumpy after that and kind of has a go at him for not having his non-oxycidal smile. Yes, which it starts to sort of paint the picture of what people on this drug look like. Because up until this point, we're not quite sure, but yeah, it starts to give the image that he's just constantly sort of got this weird vacant smile. Yeah. Like when you leave him under, when when you're not interacting with schoolwork, he's just kind of like eating white bread, like <laughs> stand, sitting sitting in a cafeteria, staring at the wall. Which I mean, 
goes towards the idea that like we know what it's like on the drug because of Jacob, but we know what it's like to interact with somebody because everybody else kind of thinks nothing of him. Yes. Yeah. Or very little of him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they just sort of don't really want to interact with him. He doesn't seem to have much of a need to interact with anyone else. No, no. There's a line later on that talks about that. I'll make sure to get to. Donald gets up in his grill and uh, seems very upset that he, Jacob doesn't respond to him. And Jacob doesn't really remember much, but he does remember sort of being on the ground, presumably because he got knocked down. And then this sudden flash of enormous unbridled fury and then nothing. Yeah, a searing wave of anger ran running through me, then nothing, blank. And then the next thing he remembers is he's sitting in, in his dormitory studying. Donald disappears. He is questioned by the police. There's nothing to report. Yeah, he says, says he walks away when Donald when Donald confronted him, which is close enough to the truth. Yeah, his parents kick up a fuss, but there is little sci-fi element number two. There is off-world military, and that's incredibly difficult to track. And that's probably what happened to him, probably. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So even though, yes, Donald's, Donald's parents get grumpy about it, but the police go, oh, well, we can't find him. He's probably gone off and joined the, the resistance group or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> There is off-world mining and off-world... Uh, not mining, like they're setting up habitats. Terraforming. Yeah, terraforming. Jacob wasn't convinced that something wasn't wrong. There's a lot of negatives in that sentence. One of the points that gets made is that this lack of memory feels different. It's not that he can't remember it, it's that that memory was never there. Yeah, yeah, it's getting more intense. It's. I, I, I love that. I love those <laughs> distinctions. It's like when we talk about Tom Bombadil in Lord of the Rings, how he's not... No, no, no. He's not unknown. He is pre-knowing. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. That's Yes. No, the distinction of that it's not that this memory is like so blurry and faded. It's like there is a slot or a chunk of memory that has been removed straight up. Yeah. Do you know your biblical mythology well? Well, no. In yeah. passing... Kinda. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it was something similar with the three beasts, the behemoth, Leviathan, and Ziz, that I'm going to go find out for sure. But I, I think <laughs> something about God did not create those things. They were there before, which if it's not in the original text, that's it's fine. It's not in the original text. It, it's going to be in my head canon because that's so much cooler. It's it's not in the original te- in the Old okay. Testament because okay. I have read, I haven't actually read the New Testament. I've read the Old Testament and yeah. those... God created all because that is the point. Well, I mean, it's the New Testament. You haven't had time yet. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. New Testament's just far too nice and happy anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, you'll you'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. When it's it's the slightly older Testament, then maybe. Exactly, exactly. 2,000 years is just not old enough for me. Well, in the new new revised Leroy text, the, (laughs) the, the three beasts of the earth were not created by God because they existed before. Yes. Back to the actual story we're covering. Yep, he wasn't convinced. There is a chunk of his memory that is was never there. I love mm. that. He went into sales school after receiving top marks, and he thought it was time to kick the drug. Yes. And I'd like it to be noted that he decides he's going to go into sales in a, with a company called Virtual Family because it, he says sales is the most mindless thing he could find and he could use his ability to talk to people and smile more in that in that field yeah the ability that he has to talk to people and smile that is granted to him by the drug Mm. so what part of him is involved in that the except for picking a path of least resistance exactly and i think that's well that's that gets brought up a lot is that the drug makes him just utterly unmotivated Mm -hmm. no desire to do anything so even though he can do whatever he wants or almost anything he wants, he can't be bothered doing anything. Yeah. As a person who feels that way without drugs, I salute him. He locked away his supply, but he did not have the nerve to destroy it. Chekhov's gun has been loaded. He said the first few weeks are easy, but then he realized that it builds up in his body and he's he's still been storing it for a week. Yeah. Wouldn't that be horrifying? Like, like... Because I, I, I know I know immunity, it's not immunity, that's the wrong word. Tolerance, that's the word I want. Tolerance to drugs builds up, but I don't know of drugs depositing themselves in 
the body because i know i know certain certain substances can break <laughs> break the way your body works heroin's a great one where it it causes i believe it's your serotonin sort of your serotonin basically stops being secreted so that basically the only way that you get serotonin hits is by shooting up so that it sort of causes this physiological change but i don't know of any drug that sits in the body just sort of chilling and therefore gets activated i guess or slowly seeps out once the drugs stop being used but yes i thought wouldn't that be terrifying is the idea of like imagine deciding to go cold turkey and then learning that it's still there and you're still technically on it and you have no control over that Ooh, now now i want to read or now maybe i want to write some like biopunk where you don't take a drug you inject something into you that builds an organ that makes a drug for your body yeah you have like a gland or a section yep. yeah that secretes it oh yeah that's horrible yeah <laughs> like some kind of werewolf juice that you can kind of like squeeze it on command yes he realizes that he has had it in his system and it lasts for about a week and he thinks oh this is fine i'll be fine because he doesn't feel the effects and then the the residual wears off and he gets hit hard we're talking about like sobbing in the bathroom like breaking down for a couple of days kind of thing that's it's pretty intense well so yeah he, he has like complete mental breakdowns basically his whole sort of emotions completely overwhelm him he can't control it he has no emotional regulation yeah. whatsoever and i thought this was really cool because if you imagine this child of 10 years old before you've even had time to, to even hit the turmoil that is teenagehood and suddenly he's basically being given autopilot because the drug knocks out the highs and the lows and it just brings out this sort of basic sort of base level complete sort of apathy to everything yep. so imagine this 10 year old suddenly being thrust into a what like 20 years old is he 20 21 22 yeah he's finished he's finished university yeah, yeah. So we'll say i think we'll say about 20 because he's so two years two years of uni we'll say at school still acts the same so he's about 20 years old imagine a 10 year old brain being thrust into 20 year old's brain mm -hmm. <laughs> with all of the thoughts and emotions and feelings that a 20 year old gets but with all of the capabilities that a 10 year old has to deal with them like that would be so overwhelming yeah absolutely i'm thinking about it now if i had a button that could turn me into autopilot how many times would i press it i mean i'd like to say that it, was, it wouldn't be a lot but i mean that day just gets a little bit too hard that interaction just gets a little bit too difficult the consequences feel too high and you just press the button it's yeah where's yeah where's the resistance where's the resilience exactly and then where's all exactly where's the resilience whenever you press that button where's the opportunity to learn that resilience where's the ability to understand what's going on and to sort of ride it and work it out because this is someone who has no idea how their emotions work because he's never really had them mm -hmm. so yeah I, I found that very very real in many aspects especially a psychological aspect the fact that when he comes off of it it just it's his emotions and it's it's his feelings that really overwhelm. There's a few withdrawal symptoms, but the main cr sort of bulk of the withdrawal seemed to be him dealing with himself. Yeah, absolutely unprocessed. hasn't hasn't developed as a human being. Yeah, exactly. So he's just sort of this child who suddenly has to be an adult <laughs> in in one week flat. The side effects aren't bad. The side effects are just being human, and that's awful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's just sort of suddenly confronted by human existence. Imagine if we could inject the the average like stress and fear that a human has into like a, a simple animal that is basically only knows survive, eat, like eat, survive, procreate. That's it. But mm. if it had a modern anxiety of a human, how how it would just fall apart. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What if I'm not eating the right thing? Oh my god. What if what did I do to the other aardvark? 
<laughs> well, that's to that point. I'm pretty sure the first the first breakdown he has is because his TV stops working. Or his, his holo set, sorry, stops working. It He turns it on and the bass fizzles and stops. And he just can't deal with that. He collapses to the floor, just absolutely overcome with emotion. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, yeah, I mean, imagine, yeah, if you weren't used to those feelings, that would just like hit you. <laughs> I had that I had that happen the other day. I was driving between clients and it was just the day that wasn't going well. I was listening to a podcast in my car and it was just kind of like stopping and sputtering. And I was so unreasonably angry at it. I just couldn't I'm like why why? Why can't I handle this today? I mean, I know why I can't handle it today. Yeah. It's a shit day. But it like imagine never having the ability to deal with that ever before. <laughs> it's it's a lot. Yeah. Well, it's it, yeah, it's, and it's it's actually a, it's something that comes up in a lot of mental mental disorders is that sort of lack of emotional regulation and learning how to deal with it, and that's actually one of the big sort of therapies for um, things like borderline personality disorder and autism and various other ones. It's just that that learning how to understand and work with the emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, even even the next part says he he got through it by teaching himself how to smile and going back in and taking yeah. on phone calls from religious people calling him and I think he calls his parents and sees how he, what his tolerance levels are like yeah because he because he says his work starts to fail and in fact yeah so before before he starts teaching himself there's the wonderful wonderful jab at high high society and the ultra wealthy where his work starts to suffer so he gets called into a virtual meeting by his boss and he notes that all of the virtual meetings are done in a regular meeting room with vr headsets but then the meeting rooms in the vr space are overly dramatized absurd places <laughs> and they're things like a, f- a like a a fantasy forest or an entirely gelatinous world or like a science science fiction off-world base and stuff like that. They don't do regular meeting rooms. And for those of you that went went through working through COVID, we all know what that looks like now and how absolutely stupid it was. Exactly. And yeah, it's <laughs> I, I loved it. Sort of, and in fact, he says as well, when he sits down, he says, you need to make sure you don't move because there was a guy he watched once who got very angry, stood up and stormed off. And of course, they couldn't, they could see his body, but they couldn't see what he walks into as he trips over and falls face first onto the ground. But yes, and then of course, he goes into this meeting, which is in this huge castle with a massive dining hall and an enormous dining table that he sits at. <laughs> If we can do this, do we have to go to work? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I um, love the the not so subtle undertones that were the boss's ego and that sort of CEO with them sitting in that huge room. <laughs> well, he even says that his his sales didn't suffer that badly. They just they noticed a dip, and mm. he was still ahead of everybody else. But they still chewed him out for it, and their expectations are, are felt as well. But he was an adult and he had a little bit of resilience and he decided not to not to break which is great yeah and then yes as you say he as you said before he taught himself how to how to deal with it all yes he rings his parents to expect a, a chastising and gets it <laughs> yeah and smiles through the whole thing things kind of turn around when he meets patrice things go well for a while he's still struggling but he's he's not breaking he's not going back to the drug and importantly he's remembering it all because he's not on it. He gets to be himself. Yep. Now, why do things start going sour? Is he is he still a little bit disconnected? So he is he's off the drugs and so he's he's himself. But to harken back to the emotional regulation or dysregulation for that matter, he starts to discover that he's falling in love with her, but he can't say it because he doesn't have the mental capacity or the understanding of his own emotions to be able to say to her that he loves her and how he feels about her so she thinks that he's cold and aloof and he's just battling this internal turmoil 
where he can't express how he feels. It's it's interesting because the the drug suppresses emotions for so long, and now he's off them, but he's still like you said, he never developed them, and that's starting to come through. Yeah, exactly. He tries to buy her an expensive breakfast of bacon and eggs, which is apparently very expensive at this future. It is not received as a generous show of appreciation. It is kind of perceived as something kind of cold. Yeah, she sort of she she makes the point that she says this was expensive, wasn't it? You get the feeling that he's potentially done this before, that he's bought very expensive things and that she's sort of sick of getting gifts when what she wants is emotional connection. But he can't provide that, so he's going to get gifts. Yeah, and it goes to show that that it kind of colors colors everything. Shows of affection without the emotion just feel like pandering. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's sort of like he's... Because he can't express himself... He buys her things, but because he can't express himself, she doesn't really see those things as important. Yeah, so things kind of start dissipating for them, and then we inject Claude. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, Claude, yes. Claude Troons. Yeah, that's that is the name of someone who's gonna steal your girlfriend. That Yeah, it really is, unfortunately. (laughs) And Apparently, he thinks that it's just a sort of friendship, if you will, but it's not. Yeah, they're they're flirting. She's obviously feeling some kind of affection. There's a bit of a jump, and he says that they don't really see each other for the next two months. Yeah, only five phone. And then he gets the the dreaded we-need-to-talk phone call. Mm -hmm. She walks in. She is cold and distant. And they are about to have their conversation. And then he has a two-week blackout. <laughs> yep. And pe- quick, quick, one of my favorite literature phrases, pathetic fallacy, which is where the emotions of the scene are reflected in the environment. It's cold and rainy when she arrives. Mm-hmm. Fisher yes. King rules. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely pouring. And yes. Yeah. So he comes out of this two-week blackout seeing the empty bottles of the drug mm-hmm. he has no idea what's happened and he says well enough's enough and finds an antidote to the drug yes that he bought he bought it a while ago because it's a black apparently some scientists created this antidote which unsurprisingly didn't go over well because you can imagine the mega rich creating this drug that makes these people work really well and then some scientists going hey we found a way to get people off of it <laughs> and therefore, the company that is selling it doesn't make money. <laughs> he says the drug isn't particularly popular, so it just it never really got developed. So he's using this black market version. Well, no, the black market version is the only version. Yeah. And it's still readily available, but only through the black market. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they never developed it into a proper approved version because there just wasn't wasn't a market from it. Mm-hmm. For it. it wasn't. It was probably suppressed as well. So after taking the uh, the anti-drug, he remembers everything. Clear as day. He, it, it sounds like it almost kills him. He gets like splitting headaches and vomits on the floor. And Yes, yeah. In fact, the, the taking of the drug is pretty classic withdrawal symptoms <laughs> that you would have expected from something like coming off of non-oxyzytol. I guess actually it sort of is because he takes this drug which basically clears out every semblance of non-oxyzytal from his body i mean there would be a physical presence do you think but do you think that he have to like sweat it out or just like is it moving to his like bowels well i wonder (laughs) if there's anything well i mean he does absolutely (laughs) yeah i wonder if there's any neurochemical inhibitors that basically non-oxyzytal wanders through the brain and deposits and mm. so this basically goes through the body and annihilates any semblance of that, which is why his memory suddenly opens up. That's the idea that the memories are all there, but the non-oxyzytal has created some sort of almost brain plaque that covers them. And so this drug, this new drug, basically just wipes it all out. Yeah, I kind of imagined it like some kind of like black tar buildup. But solid, mm. almost a metal that was kind of breaking down into his bloodstream. Brief tangent. Mm. What color did you imagine both non-oxyzytol and the anti-drug? Okay. I think he says the bottles are blue, mm-hmm. but the, the the drug itself is pristine white. 
It okay. looks like Panadol. It's really, really non, like non-confrontational. Mm-hmm. But the deposit in his body that he creates is black. Huh. Yeah. And the uh, the antidote is in kind of those brown. What do you put on 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 wounds? That that really disgusting like orange. Oh, the brown. Anti- antiseptic. Yeah. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. It looks the the bottle is brown, but the liquid is also brown. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like that that orange brown, fluoro orange brown. Huh. What about you? So I saw Nonoxyzital as blue, a sort of almost neon blue, and it's sort of the 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 liquid is blue, everything about it is blue. I sort of almost saw it hardening into sort of blue like crystals. If anyone's seen the film Lucy, like that basically, and then I imagine the anti drug as black, like tar black, this sort of substance that's just nasty, and just yeah. Basically a venom symbiote? Yeah, sort of, but much more viscous and sort of basically like, whereas non-oxycytal is designed to be palatable and ingestible, which we'll get to, the the anti-drug is, the anti-drug represents reality. It represents the unpleasantness of everything. And so it isn't covered by this nice, pristine nature. It is nasty. It's unpleasant. It's in the brown bottle. Yeah, um, yeah, I, we're we're coming at the same concept, which is interesting. That, that yeah. <laughs> one is one is palatable. I think your version of it is is pleasant. Mine mm. is like nothing. It's it's not it's not offensive. It's not aggressive. Yeah, and the antidote is unpleasant, and you don't want to put it in your body, even though it is arguably good for you. What we get from the remembering everything is, I'm sure some readers have have guessed at this point, but a graphic murder scene. Yeah, it takes a nasty turn. Yeah, and it is detailed. It is also cold and clinical. He he mentions, I don't know how much you want to talk about. Like, there is some breaking of noses and some stomping and some esophagus crushing. So, I think we should talk about it to quite a level of detail because it has an important note for the hypothesis that I have regarding a lot of this story. It, it's revealed that she rocks up to his place, comes in, says we need to talk uh, this isn't going well the way i want it to i'm not interested in email anymore all that sort of things and he feels like he's about to cry and so he realizes he can't cry in front of her he can't cry in front of anyone but he desperately definitely can't cry in front of her mm-hmm. which i thought <laughs> subtle toxic masculinity nod quite nice but so he runs off to his bathroom and takes the non-oxyzital and Really importantly, this is the first time we see how non-oxyzytol is administered. And it is injected through a through a syringe into his neck. Yeah, like a hypo needle. Yeah, and I thought that was such a nice and nasty, but such a cool way to to show it because throughout this this story, you're not quite sure how it's administered. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really talk about it, but now you suddenly have this visceral image of him injecting it which then means you can go back to the visceral image of a 10 year old having this injected into them Mm -hmm. because it's the same drug and it's always has been the same drug so every time he mentions doing it he actually is talking about injecting this stuff into his neck and i i thought that was quite wonderfully horrific this sort of sudden concept that this child is constantly having this just jammed into their neck it's like, oh, oh, that's nasty. He walks out of the bathroom and she says, are you all right? And he says, perfectly fine, as he slams his hand into her fa- head. And then he bashes her head against the bookshelf until she's unrecognizable. And then, yeah, he stomps her throat. And it's very brutal and very graphic. And then, yeah, and then he goes, right, now I have to clean this up. And he's very clinical, very calm, very collected. He actually wraps the her jacket around her her head before the blood pools or before too much of the blood pools like he's he's on top of it he knows what's next and yep. it feels like like it's not a crime of passion mm-hmm. because it kind of mm-hmm. isn't no no not at that point yeah um, and there and then he wraps her up in the blanket and goes and takes her to a dump and throws her in where he watches her get pulped by the by the machine that's doing the the rubbish destru- destruction and <laughs> i have a note for this because when i asked my dad about it he said how this was the sort of the undercurrent was the medication stuff 
And then he said, but it was really just an excuse to beat someone in the head and wrap them in a blanket, which <laughs> I don't know about some of, some of you listeners, but I found one of the most relatable things as a writer. Yes, sometimes you get this really visceral, sometimes incredibly unpleasant scene in your head and you're just like, I want to write a story that revolves entirely around that moment because it's really cool and like maybe no one else will think it's cool, but I think it's cool. <laughs> And so, yes, I thought that was one of the most amusingly relatable <laughs> things I'd heard. But this leads into a note about non-oxyzytol and an undercurrent of the story, which I noticed heavily, especially because of my sort of psychological background. I thought it was very fascinating that this drug turns people into what are ostensibly psychopaths. Or we'll say sociopath, actually, because that's the that's the ICD-11's medical term. Antisocial personality disorder is the DSM-5's medical term. But in this case, I'd say it's not antisocial personality disorder. There's some technicalities. Basically, you have to have a childhood violence slash misdemeanors and things like that. And then adults, crime, things like that for antisocial personality disorder whereas sociopathy is more a mental state more of a sort of descriptor of the way the mind is and yeah so i thought it was fascinating that this drug turns this person who is emotional as we see who has outbursts things like into a cold clinical sociopath he is calm collected he doesn't feel most of his emotions the ones he does feel are deadened he is charming he is the one who smiles at the party he's the one who people want to buy things from and i i found that wonderfully wonderfully telling i guess and sort of a nice writing of modern day society where we look to ceos we look to people who are in high positions of power and think ah they're doing it right i mean you can see that from the way people look at various company leaders and go I want to be like that person. And so, yeah, I thought medically induced sociopathy was <laughs> a wonderfully fascinating concept where basically, yeah, you have these parents who decided their child is going to be successful, so they're going to make them into a sociopath. It's one thing as an adult to pick that, but it's another thing for a parent to go, hmm, what do I want? Cold-blooded sociopath. At least they'll be able to get through school. And I wonder if my parents would have taken that. <laughs> Well, I thought as well, the really strong note, which is there's an undercurrent of when he becomes a sociopath, he becomes successful. This is a society that thrives on the idea of a lack of emotion, a lack of empathy, a lack of remorse. But most people aren't. So yes, I thought that was really fascinating. This is medically induced sociopathy. Yeah. Still going with my gland idea that we can just, we can squeeze it and get a little bit of sociopathy out of us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> takes a page out of Donald Donald's supposed book, which at this point he knows that he killed him. Well, he's pretty sure that he killed him. Oh, yeah. And and pretty sure Cindy too, to be fair. Yeah, and pretty sure Cindy too, yeah. Which, also, that's why I say I reckon his parents are wealthy. Because Cindy, he can't have hidden that. He can't have covered that up at 15. I mean, he might have, but it's highly unlikely. She went to the mining rig. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the child mines. Yeah, the child mines. And then Donald Donald, his family kicked up a fuss and then the police said, oh, he went off world. And I can't help but feel like there's this undercurrent of the parents, at least with Cindy, had something to do with it. I, I felt they had to be wealthy enough to influence that. Definitely could be read that way. Yep. I guess they're very disappointed that he's a sales guy. But anyway. <laughs> do you ever think they would have been they would have been satisfied though? I don't think they would have. No. <laughs> He's going to take a take a page out of a Donald Donald's supposed book and fly off into space where they don't ask a lot of questions and they disappear very quickly. Yes, he decides. He says he's got a bunch of uh, bunch of leave up his sleeve, so no one will really notice. And then yeah, he goes on to a terraforming ship, which has five crew members and ten terraforming members. Mm -hmm. And it goes into quite a bit of cool sci-fi detail about how the ship can detach from from the module and it will land and it will begin the terraforming then and there and how it will fly back and it's kind of super cool stuff i like <laughs> practical sci-fi stuff and well the, the one of the practical things i thought was like that's true but that's horrifying was 
it takes them two years to get to the planet. Nothing can fly faster than that. So in order to send a message back, it'll take two years. In order for any colonist to get to the terraforming, terraformed planet, assuming that it has been terraformed, will take four years. So they could have the planet up and running, send a note out, and then they have to sort of wait <laughs> for four years. Yeah, but more importantly, any, any message about him being a crazy murderer isn't going to reach the colony for a while and he'll be in the clear at that point. He also remembers, just to add to the guilt, because it should be noted, when he is on non-oxyzytol, as I say, he's full, full-blooded full sociopath, so he doesn't feel bad, doesn't feel remorse for anything he's done. When he's not, he is a regular person with some serious emotion dysregulation. He gets remorse, and he's like, holy shit, I've done this. And one of the things that he realizes he's done is that, of course, the police come around asking about Patrice. And he says he hasn't seen her in two months. And so naturally that makes Claude the number one suspect. So he kills himself. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Which is like, oh, poor Claude. <laughs> so yes, he has quite a few people's blood on his hand. Because, yeah, it indirectly caused quite a few deaths. It's not looking good for him. And I don't really want him in space. We go through a lot of detail about the training that he goes through. They put the crew to sleep, except for the pilots. And, you know, they've, they've experienced some problems with people kind of going in and out of sleep. Uh, of, uh, like, cryosleep, I should say. And th that that seems to all be tested out. He, he notes that the company doesn't seem to think there's much bother testing it out any longer than one day, was it? Yeah, something like that. Was it one week? Yeah. They're like, yeah, the first things happen in the first, I think it was the first week. First problems happen in the first week. They'll be fine. Yeah. Anything else, we'll kind of deal with it as we deal with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which doesn't go well. He comes out of hypersleep a little bit cranky. Yeah, he, he's, he's sort of slathering and shaking and really unhinged because it turns out that he had massive panic attacks while in hypersleep and he gets them after, was it like the third week or something like that? And it's a two-month two months sleep yeah yeah and his body is just getting more agitated as it goes on which is again back to the emotional regulation he, he he's agitated the entire time and i don't know if it's implied that everyone else is kind of like in a non-space they don't remember any of this and he's remembering all of it being tied down so <laughs> he comes he comes out of hypersleep agitated mm. and the first thing that they go to do is put him back on the drug yeah, they have. In fact, I'm pretty sure they hold him down because he tries to bite someone or something like that. And they bring out the non-oxyzytol and, of course, he loses his shit because he knows what that does and he knows what he'll do if he's on it. And so he gets more agitated, which, of course, prompts them to administer it. Yeah, so at this point... He's going, about to go on another murderous rampage, which is detailed in pages and pages and pages, and it's brutal and kind of awesome. But he remembers this time. Yes, this is all he's he's remembered it clearly. There's no blank spots for this one. And he, he talks about how he stands up and everyone thinks, oh, he's fine, because they mistake his calm for <laughs> safety. And at which point he snaps the first person's neck and that shocks them and then he basically wanders his way through the five crew members killing them all and there's a point about this that i really like which is that at the st when it's mentioned he gets on the ship he talks about walking around shaking hands with everyone and learning their names when he's describing killing everyone he says about one two three four and then five he doesn't name names he just talks about the number as they are according to the number he's killed yeah so we, we talked about the the idea that he, he remembers this one. He remembers all the details. He doesn't black out and then have to remember later. And you, I think you said in a conversation that we had that you think it's the result of the, uh, the antidote that did this. Yeah. Yeah. So I reckon that the antidote has left something there that the, it's sort of stopping the blocking of the receptors. Yeah, basically. Do you think that's why he also remembered hypersleep and it was agitating? Potentially, I reckon the anti-drug 
basically removes its staying power basically so i would be unsurprised if like if there was a sequel which there won't be because of what happens at the end but if there was i would be unsurprised if like the non-oxyzytol didn't build up in his bloodstream anymore and so it wouldn't basically stick to him if you will so the effects still happen and they still basically go through his mind go through his body and affect him and then they wear off and they're gone and therefore yeah none of the the residual aspects of non-oxyzytol are there yeah if i do want a sequel now <laughs> did we talk about the, the the final victim that he dosed with the drug no, I, I thought I'd leave that one for you. He doses the final victim with the drug and murders him just as he's placid. It's just brutal. He beats his head in with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> the fire extinguisher as weapon of choice for most of the killings, by the way. Yes, yes. No, no real weapons, actually. And I'm pretty sure he disconnects the crew pods so they all go out into space. Yeah, they jettison into space. <laughs> and then it finishes with him sitting in the pilot's chair recording this book he says the final line do you ever get the feeling you're trapped and are going to die i do but not for much longer yeah there's no way to control this pod they're not making it to the other side no because he jettisons he jettisons everything i'm pretty sure he's just floating and quick author's note as well just to add the book starts with do you ever get the feeling and ends with do you ever get the feeling and the story is, do you get the feeling? Apparently the idea was to start every section with a different, do you ever get the feeling? Like, do you ever get the feeling you're falling? Do you ever get the feeling you've lost everything? But as dad was writing it, he went, nah, this doesn't work. It just feels too clunky. So it only starts with, do you ever get the feeling? And ends with, do you ever get the feeling? Which I thought was interesting. So bookending it instead of chaptering it. I can see how that would have been a bit clunky, but I, I like the way it was written. Some of the weird fiction that we cover and how it's not contemporary and it's kind of clunky and doesn't flow at all. It's it's nice to read something a bit more sci-fi, a little bit more streamlined, well-written. Good job. I really like this book. To jump off that point, I really like the way it builds. The fact that you start with this very vague, very sort of basic understanding what's going on but you feel about as lost as he does and then by the end you understand all the details and you get the same sort of feel as he does where it's like at the start non-oxyzytal is just the drug that makes him happy and by the end he's injecting it into his neck and it's making him flaccid and just yeah a, a very very capable sociopath it's like i i like that build we only see the world through his eyes, but we do get a glimpse that, again, not everyone is like this, that that it's not some high-concept 70s sci-fi, that it is still a story about people. I didn't feel sympathy for him, but I think I wasn't meant to. Like, he, he never had a chance to be human. No, I think I felt... I felt sympathy for the person... For the child. Yeah, exactly. I felt sympathy for the child because... By the end, you don't feel sympathy for him because he doesn't feel sympathy for himself either. He's going to kill himself. He doesn't. He's he's done all these things. He can't. He can't come to terms with that. But I think, yeah, the child, the the what could have been, versus what he is, yeah, definitely feel sympathy for that. Reading to it with you just then, pinpointing he's ten years old when he gets waylaid into this drug, and it's, he never had a chance. It sucks. Now, what happens in the sequel? <laughs> he dies. <laughs> He gets picked up by by another terraforming crew. He gets picked up by an alien race who thinks that he's an example of what humanity is, and they they rush to wipe us all out. Yeah, we can't have them floating through space. <laughs> true, true. Although to be fair, if he's jettisoned everything and he's not got any non-oxyzytol, he's just a remorseful, sad wreck at that point. Some kind of like comedy of errors happens. He slips and falls on hypo needle and <laughs> just in the perfect spot in his neck, and he goes into a rage. Well, on, on that note, this was a lot deeper than I expected it to go, I'll be honest. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to have too much to say about it, but it, this is what I love about this podcast. We get a chance to talk and it turns out there's there's all sorts of stuff to uncover. There really is. There really is. I hope you guys enjoyed the journey as well. We've enjoyed reading it. We've enjoyed talking about it. Yes. No, it's been a, it's been a, a good one. Really enjoyed talking about this one. As I say, though, I am very biased. Who's that author again? The author's name is Simon Parker. <laughs> My dad. Thank you, Simon, for sharing that with us. 
So, to go completely unbiased now, what have we got next week? So we are covering Michael Shea's Dagoniad. I think it's kind of like the Iliad. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think it's meant to be okay. pronounced like the, the Iliad, but I don't know. Maybe there's an explanation in the book. Michael <laughs> Shea is a contemporary Lovecraft writer. I've read some of his short stories. Copping Squid is exceptional, set in modern-day LA, but with these great allusions to kind of alcoholism and... And like the madness of, of Lovecraftian beings mixed with like modern day kind of horrors. Really good stuff. I I love what I've read so far. I'm looking forward to reading more. Plus, I already have this book. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram, DoubleScores. Yep, and you can find me at ShadeP99 on Instagram as well. You can also, if any of you haven't, find Strange Library Podcast on Instagram. I don't think we've shared this out before. But if you wanted to just follow the, the podcast... We're on there as a strange library pod. We will put all that stuff in the show notes this time and we'd be great to get people recommending some books. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next episode. See you later.